The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Andrus. She has been a food safety specialist with Georgia Cooperative Extension since 1994 and is a professor in the Department of Foods and Nutrition at the University of Georgia in Athens. Her extension programs in food safety and quality include home food preservation and food service sanitation, including the Serve Safe Food Handler Certification Program. Most importantly, and from my perspective and for today's show, she is also the director of the National Center for Home Food Preservation. And I have been using Dr. Andrus's expertise in answering consumer questions about food safety for decades. She is award-winning for her work in food safety education. Welcome, Dr. Andrus. It's a delight to have you with me. Well, thank you very much, and I'm very pleased to be able to talk to you today. Well, I was looking at your credentials and I thought, wow, you've got a PhD in food science from Penn State University, a master's in family and child development from Virginia Tech, and an an AB in home economics with education. And I thought to myself, home economics, from my perspective, because of course, my dietetics education was also housed in a school or college of home economics. I don't think it's valued enough, and maybe it's because it's been traditionally a women's field, but I think it's really rich with the kind of information that improves the quality of life. Tell me what you think about home economics from your perspective. Well, of course, we've been battling for a few decades now, kind of what a lot of people see as the demise of home economics or the disappearance of it. I like to think of it more as maybe just a misunderstanding of what home economics is about these days and, quite honestly, even what it's called. And I think that's part of a problem. The name of the profession has been changing over time. Yes. And, of course, the universities that house some key home economics programs changed names and even started merging with other colleges. But the disciplines and the emphases you talked about in improving quality of life still do exist and I think are strong. I know it varies from state to state, but right now we're actually seeing a resurgence in many parts of Georgia to get some family and consumer science is what they call it now, education back into the public schools. And they've added some pathways now beyond some of the traditional where we even have a food science pathway in addition to nutrition and wellness coming out of our family and consumer science programs. So I think that's a positive and we maybe just need to keep reminding people what we're called now and really what our basic values and our mission is. I couldn't agree more. And there's so much in words and language, but to help people understand all of the critical issues, many of which that we're struggling with today, like even home economics or managing a budget, having some sort of financial literacy, that's under the umbrella of what we used to call home economics. Certainly the idea of food safety and food preparation. I remember it was mandatory when I was in high school to take a home economics class And we learned how to sew, we learned how to cook, we learned these basic economics that were really essential then 
as they are still today. So I'm glad to be having this discussion with you. You received a PhD in food science. What led you down that specific path? That's an interesting background story also. I did go through college myself in home economics education, thinking I wanted to be a school home economics teacher. But for various reasons, including mentorship from faculty, I went immediately into graduate school when I finished my bachelor's degree and did get the master's in family and child development. And when I finished that, I decided to go to work for Cooperative Extension. At that time, I was an extension agent, called an extension home economist in those days, Mm -hmm. with Penn State Extension. And while I was a county extension agent, I got to take a food science week-long in-service training at Penn State's food science department on home food preservation. And so we covered canning, freezing, drying, pickling, fermentation, and making jams and jellies. It was a lab-based in-service, this week-long course from food science faculty. And I just became very interested in it. They actually offered that to Extension County faculty for an optional graduate credit if you wanted to pay for it. So having just finished my master's in family and child development, I said, sure, I'll take a graduate credit in food science and pay my $70 or whatever it was. Yeah. So by doing that, I had to do an extra lab report for the instructor. In any case, make a long story short, after he read that, he called me up on the phone and said he just graded it, and he needed a graduate student to start in the next month Wow! Um, and was offering me an assistantship and potential entry into the Ph.D. program in food science at Penn State. So I decided on the phone that day that's what I was going to do and trust him, and I just kind of fell in love with it, and I did well enough in that program that Really, the assistantship was actually USDA-funded to work in the area of home food preservation. Yeah. And you know what's so interesting to me is that during my career in food and nutrition, I used to answer a lot of food preservation questions when I was at the University of Missouri, and the topic sort of waxed and waned. But what I've seen recently is really a resurgence in interest, especially among younger consumers who want to be able to grow their own food and then learn how to preserve it. And I stumbled across this amazing quote. It was from civil rights organizer Fannie Lou Hammer. And she said, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, no one can push you around or tell you what to do. And she said, to free ourselves, we must feed ourselves. And I thought, you know, there is a lot of power in producing our own food and also knowing how to preserve it for the winter months. So that leads us to the National Center for Home Food Preservation, which you have developed and created into such a fantastic, to me, it's a one-stop shop place for all things related to safe food preservation with an emphasis on safety. Right. (laughs) Great website. Tell me how it's developed and tell our listeners a little bit more about it. Well, Historically in this country, the federal agency in our government that would make recommendations to consumers, of course, starting with farmers, even in the late 1800s, about home canning and home food preservation methods was USDA. And USDA, of course, is the federal agency that houses and helps with the administration of the nationwide cooperative extension system. And it was those former agents, either agriculture or what were called home demonstration agents, that would take the science of food preservation out to youth and 4-H clubs as well as homemakers. 
but they have continued throughout their history to issue uh, science-based home canning in particular and some other food preservation recommendations in print form. But as things happen, of course, agencies change, reorganizations happen. So several decades ago, they actually started looking at some of the land-grant universities for more leadership in this area versus it coming directly from USDA. The National Center for Home Food Preservation, which I've been directing since actually late 1999, was the direct result of some funding available for some leadership in this area through USDA. Prior to that, there had been like a Center for Excellence funded in the 1980s at Penn State for a few years, and periodically there has been some research projects funded to further home canning. But at this point in time, in 1999, they were looking for someone to really give leadership to updating and researching the foundations for their current recommendations and taking things a little bit further. So I did apply for that, along with some collaborators in other states, and we received funding for that leadership. At somewhere along the line, in one of the renewals, we also decided to say, okay, now it's time to have a website and an Internet presence. Mm-hmm. So we added that to the plan of work, and that got funding also. So the current website is actually one of many products of several rounds of grants that I received to start and then continue the National Center for Home Food Preservation. Well, I love it because you've got everything from how do I can, freeze, dry, cure and smoke, how do I ferment. That's been really popular lately with the emphasis yeah. on probiotics how to make jams and jellies and pickles. And of course, not only do we have garden harvesting and we want to preserve that, but many people want to make homemade gifts and we don't want to hurt anybody. And I think there might be 50 different ways to make a potato casserole, but there's really only one safe way to can specific foods. And I think that is a really important take-home message for me anyway when I was doing this work that This isn't the place to be creative when it comes to time and pressure. And we should talk about the different methods of canning because that, to me, was one of the most dangerous areas where people were not canning for long enough times or they were taking foods that were low in acid and they were canning them incorrectly. So maybe we should focus specifically on canning. Would you agree that's the biggest food safety area? That is To me, the biggest food safety risk in home food preservation, yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you have an elevator speech on if you're talking to somebody and they say, you know, I'm really interested in home canning, what do you tell them? I do tell them that if they're just getting started in this area, they really need to spend some time doing a little bit of reading. It's not talking volumes of books, but for example, there's just one beginning chapter in the USDA Complete Guide to Home Canning that is Principles of Home Canning. And that really lays out pretty succinctly the food safety concerns and the best recommendations for maintaining food safety when canning. So first message is do invest a little time in actually reading about the principles and don't just have somebody hand you directions and say, here, do this. I do stress that they should look at actual methods for carrying out a canning process. You might pick up directions that say, process in boiling water for 20 minutes, but you have to actually know how you're supposed to get that canner to boiling and keep it boiling and how you cool the jars at the end of boiling to really make that work safely. You also need to know how to actually fill the jars right to even make the process we have carry out in a safe manner. Exactly. And then another caution I often have to give people is 
start with something a little less risky food safety-wise and perhaps a little bit easier to do. I'm often dealing with some first-time canners that pick a very complicated recipe, say for some kind of vegetable soup, to pressure can as their very first canning activity. And even operating a pressure canner correctly is a much more complicated process than a boiling water process. So I really encourage people to at least go through the mechanics and the steps of canning with something in boiling water first. Those foods also happen to be more acidic and offer fewer safety risks than if you do a food that requires pressure canning, like a soup or meats or anything like that. And again, I'm not saying don't pressure can, but just at least get yourself through the step-by-step. Mm-hmm. You work your way through how to fill jars, how to prepare food, how to fill jars, how to close jars, how to monitor the canning process with something much less risky and not as complicated, and then you could move on to a more complicated process. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, years ago, it used to be that maybe somebody would pick up a magazine article or some sort of craft book that would give some recommendations on home canning that might not be as safe as what we might find at USDA. But now with the internet, there is such an opportunity to get misinformation, which is why I want to direct people to the National Center for Home Food Preservation. One of the issues with regard to pressure canning is the popularity of these new Instant Pots. And I got one several months ago, and I thought, wow, this is really great. I can cook tough meat, leaner, tougher cuts of meat quickly, and it's wonderful, and I can do dried beans really quickly. And I thought, I'll bet people are curious as to whether they can use their Instant Pots for home canning. And what do you say to people who are curious about that? Yeah, this is an interesting area, and even before the brand of Instant Pot became so popular, there was another, or actually at least two other manufactured brands prior to that that were telling people they could can in them. Mm-hmm. They didn't really provide specific directions, but referred people to other sources and just told them basically which lid to use and which rack to use and, and that kind of thing. Then, of course, there are, were other brands that came out. There are several more now, even besides Instant Pot. What I tell people about them is, in my area of research and work, I actually at this point know of no proper research that has been done to tell you how to process foods in these electric multi-cookers, in, you know, in the more the generic name. Right. I have contacted several manufacturers. I have not gotten answers to the fact that those that tests have been done. I have gotten more conversation with one particular major manufacturer, and they did begin on some of the research. I don't currently know today exactly the status of that, but they are working towards some of that data collection. And then with others, I simply get no response at all, which maybe tells me they must not be doing the research-based process development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One misunderstanding that a lot of people have, including some of these manufacturers from the materials I've read from them, is that they think simply if their unit can get to the required pressure, for example, say USDA says to can green beans in pint jars for 20 minutes at 11 pounds pressure. Mm -hmm. So they're telling people we get to 11 or more pounds pressure, so we've met those standards. But the science is totally different for the current canning processes we have. It is not just the time at pressure that matters. Mm -hmm. One important key is what 
temperature inside the canner or cooker is associated with that pressure. There's mm-hmm. nothing magic about pressure. It's pressure gets the temperature up to where we need it. So you have to know that you actually have the temperature inside. And I know of a few independent tests that have been done that shown some of these cookers don't actually reach the right temperature even when the pressure is set at a certain pressure. Mm. Also, another key is the USDA process times we have now are not dependent just on the process time at pressure. Sterilization of your food or killing a bacteria, if you will, happens while the canner's coming up to pressure, when it's at pressure, and during the time when you turn the heat off and the canner cools down to zero pounds pressure. Mm -hmm. With some of our processes, over 30% of the killing of bacteria or the sterilization occurs once you turn the heat off and the canner cools down. Wow. So if we have a unit that, say, cools down faster, mm-hmm. then we're under-sterilizing our food. Yeah. And all we're kind of asking the manufacturers to do is to collect some heating data and show us that these patterns during come-up, process, and cool-down match USDA in a traditional stovetop canner yeah. because it's not dependent just on the published process time at pressure. And that's a hard concept for people to realize yeah. when they don't see the original data and methods used. Exactly. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. My guest is Dr. Elizabeth Andrus. She is an award-winning food safety specialist with Georgia Cooperative Extension and a professor in the Department of Foods and Nutrition at the University of Georgia in Athens. She has been the director of the National Center for Home Food Processing and Preservation for almost 20 years. We talk about the importance of bringing foods to certain pressure and temperature, What are the bacterial contaminants that we are most concerned about? When we talk about foods that are required to be processed under pressure to be safe, we're talking about what is called low-acid foods for canning purposes. And this is true whether home canning or commercial canning. And we have a certain acidity cut off because of bacteria of concern. But the main bacterium of concern for foods that require pressure canning and are low-acid foods is Clostridium botulinum. It is a human pathogen. It causes botulism poisoning. Botulism poisoning can actually kill you, so it's nothing to be messed around with. We're not talking about just a tummy ache for a day or so. Right. But the risk here is death, and that's why we're so keen to get people to understand safe canning, especially of low-acid foods. Exactly. But what happens is these bacteria actually like the environment inside a closed jar of food. They like the fact that there's not oxygen available in their environment and they're in a vacuum environment. They like a pH over 4.6 specifically, the low acid pH, and they need some moisture, which is in all these canned foods. So just sitting at room temperature, if those bacteria survive the canning process, then they can produce a toxin which can be deadly to humans. So we have to make sure our process, the heat that gets all throughout the food in the jar during the whole canning procedure actually will kill these bacteria. Right. They exist in our foods naturally in a very heat-resistant form called a spore, and that's why we have to use extra high temperatures to kill them because they're more heat-resistant than the bacteria we're trying to kill in acid foods that can be done in boiling water. And all of this information is available at your website, which we will make available to our listeners. I'll go ahead and just say what it is. It's simply nch 
FP, which stands for National Center for Home Food Preservation, UGA. Edu, and we'll provide that link also to our listeners on our website. So we'll be able to find out what are the super high risk foods. I think that for a lot of us, myself included, I find it to be a little intimidating, this whole idea of canning and making sure the temperature is upright. And it's probably the reason why I, and I know other people as well, choose to freeze foods. And one of the questions I get all the time from my friends who do this is, do I really need to blanch? What is the purpose of blanching? And can I cheat and not do it? (laughs) Sure, you can cheat and not do it, but you might have quality of food you don't like. The purpose of blanching, even though it may kill a few bacteria, it's not really a safety step so much as a step for preserving food quality. What happens with foods that are even stored at freezer temperatures is there are some naturally found components in there called enzymes that will continue to be active at freezer temperatures that ruin food qualities. They create reactions that cause off flavors. They sometimes work on colors and nutrient losses as well as texture loss. So what the blanching does, a little amount of heat given, it inactivates these enzymes, and then they can't be functional. Now, these are processes that goes on that spoil food even kept at higher temperatures. It's just much slower in the freezer. Mm -hmm. So some people I know think that blanching doesn't matter, may not store their food very long in the freezer. And you may not notice a quality difference, say, for six to eight weeks. Mm -hmm. But if you're storing food long term, you're going to start to really see some deterioration in quality in foods that you don't blanch. And your website has a whole guide on how to freeze different foods. So... I think when we think about food preservation, we want to preserve not only for safety, but also to preserve those great flavors that we enjoy during the summer months. So this is great. All right. Now, with regard to making gifts for loved ones, I think there was, I think Martha Stewart brought back a lot of these home economic types of procedures. But I know that there are lovely jars that we can put vinegars in with different herbs, When I start to get nervous is when I see oils that have herbs put in them because that too creates a risk for botulism. So what do you tell people who are making vinegar and oil and herb combinations for holiday gifts? It is important to realize that anything submerged in oils by themselves are similar to kind of being a canned food in a sealed jar in a way, we're creating what's called an oxygen-free environment around any bacteria that might be in there because oil kind of keeps air away from it. And that's why we have a risk of botulism there also. So the best recommendation to me if you're making up these mixtures or even if it's a mixture of oil and vinegar and herbs or something is to keep it in the refrigerator or freezer. We do now have some research-based recommendations for flavoring garlic oils, but not canning them, but flavoring them out of Idaho, University of Idaho. And the National Center website um, links people to that Idaho publication. But we still don't have a lot we can offer for room temperature storage of some of these low-acid vegetable materials, whether it be herbs or garlic in oils or oil mixtures and store at room temperature, because you really are running a risk of botulism for sure. Oh, that's really good to know. You know, I just ran into a woman at the farmer's market who was roasting peppers, and she was storing them in oil. And I thought, oh, I need to bring this up with Elizabeth Andrus because 
the next time I see her, I'm going to ask her, you are storing those in the refrigerator, right? My concern was that she would store them on the shelf. Is there a canning procedure with some of these roasted vegetables and oil? We actually, on our website or any of extension materials, and I think this is probably true throughout the country because I'm always keeping my eye out and other states are informing me and if any new work they have, we do not have any recommendations for canning things in oils, particularly not solid oil like people want to do sun-dried tomatoes in oil a lot now, right. too, or the roasted peppers and roasted tomatoes. I will tell you that Darden Home Brands, which puts out the ball-branded publications, mm-hmm. now does a, in their latest book, have a couple of procedures that call for roasting garlic before adding it to other mixtures, like, say, a spaghetti sauce. I've not seen that research or any micro work done, so we've not incorporated and still said that's okay with our recipes. We want people preparing ours the way we say to do it, that are research-based. Mm-hmm. And I don't know of any other ongoing research in that area right now. I will say along this line of specialty foods, maybe, too, back to the purpose of the National Center website, we started this, as I mentioned, with USD funding. Our point is to represent, first and foremost, the land-grant university and USDA recommendations, extension Mm -hmm. recommendations. We are not a source that is going to put up a lot, any information from other independent or commercial sources. And if people want to use those directions, my position is kind of you then have to understand you are trusting those manufacturers or I can't independently verify that if it's nothing that matches any research we've done or ever seen in extension. Right. You've got a great book. And I think that if people are looking, like perhaps even to give as a gift, the So Easy to Preserve book, I guess the sixth edition is still in print as of September 2014. <laughs> It is, yes, uh-huh. Okay. And we just reprinted it a couple months ago, so it's in stock right now also. Great. No, I think that for people who want to get involved in doing more home food preservation, and I think it's a wonderful skill to have, I think putting safety first would be my biggest recommendation, and then knowing where to go for safe information is key. Right. And so easy to preserve has stood the test of time, if you will, since the mid-1980s. I actually was not the person who started it, but I've been responsible for the last, I think, three or four editions. And it has canning, freezing, drying, making pickled products, and uh, also jams and jellies in there. So it is more comprehensive than just a canning god from USDA. And we do update it. We review it before we do any reprints. As you mentioned, we're now in the sixth edition, which means changes have been made to get a new edition number. I actually was just contacted today by somebody who wanted to know if her original book could still be used. Well, we've withdrawn things. I think every time it's been a new edition, things have been withdrawn for safety concerns. We only ever consider the current edition really the one we support. And I know even between this edition and the last one, we withdrew a couple of things for safety reasons. Mm. So we do encourage people at the not-so-expensive price it is for what you get kind of message to really stay up with the latest edition of that book, as well as looking at any other old food preservation books they may have, even from major names like Ball or Kerr or some others. They make changes, and we really need to stay up to the most current editions of these things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. 
Well, we are at the close of our program, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Andrus. She is the head of the National Center for Home Food Preservation. She is an award-winning food safety specialist with Georgia Cooperative Extension at the University of Georgia in Athens. And I just can't tell you how much I appreciate your expertise and for sharing it with us. We'll make sure everybody knows about the National Center for Home Food Preservation to get the most updated, safe, and delicious recipes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Melinda.